Amen. Well, I hope you've been practicing the Word of God. Hope you've been doing the Word of God. Uh, when you do the Word of God, there's a wonderful, beautiful promise to it. It's in James chapter 1, verse 25. It says that if, if anyone will look intently, consistently, into the perfect law that gives what? Freedom. Not bondage, but freedom. If you're looking into something that gives you bondage, you're looking at the wrong thing. Because the Word of God, the principles of God, give freedom. And so if you do this and you continue to do it, not just twice a year, but you end up developing a lifestyle of getting into the Word and chewing on the Word and thinking about the Word, meditating about the Word. And you're not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the Word. I think the King James says a doer of the work. You're a doer of the Word. Guess what it says? You will be blessed in what you do. You'll be blessed in all of your deeds. I want you to pause and think about that promise. You will be blessed in what you do. Who wouldn't want to be blessed in all their deeds and what they do and everything they do? Well, James promises that from the word that if we look and do the word, it has a blessing to us and it blesses our lives. But you and I, but I'm talking to me too, we all can be prone to hearing the word, maybe even getting motivated about the word and then forgetting about the word when lunch is over. So just a quick reminder, a couple weeks ago, we talked about make yourself a prophet of God's word. Not an Old Testament prophet, not a foreteller or a fortune teller. Make yourself a prophet, somebody who speaks the word of God over your life. So we talked about that. Now I gave a little suggestion that you make a daily confession of faith. Now maybe you already have a daily confession of faith. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you don't have a daily confession of faith and you heard that message two weeks, did you make a daily confession of faith? And if you say no, then I want to encourage you to practice that. It doesn't have to be five pages long. It can be a paragraph or so, and you just begin speaking the word of God over your life every single day. It'll become a habit. You won't even have to read it anymore. You'll just speak it. So then we talked last week about it is time. It is time. Enough is enough. You and I, we all let things go in our lives way too long. We tolerate things and oftentimes accommodate things that we know just aren't right, and we just keep doing that. And God's saying it's time. So we were to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, hey, show us the number one thing. Because I can tell you, because I do this with regularity, I say, what do I need to deal with in my life? And the list gets pretty long. You know what I mean? So you go, okay, I can't chase 10 rabbits at one time. So what's the one thing, Holy Spirit, that you want me to really focus on? So something I might need to quit doing, or maybe it's something I need to start doing. And so you ask the Holy Spirit, help me to learn. And then you just start getting the Word of God in you on that, and you start practicing it and doing it and putting it into practice. By the way, anytime you start something new and you start practicing it, it's never pretty at first. It takes a while to practice to where you develop a skill level. So don't get discouraged. Don't say, well, I, I've been working on that for three days and I don't feel like I've made any progress. We'll turn that three days into three weeks, three months, three years, three decades if you need to. Just keep at it and keep making forward momentum. Keep putting the Word of God into practice and you'll be blessed in your deeds. So I hope you've been doing the Word of God because it doesn't say you'll be blessed in your deeds if you hear and forget you're blessed in your deeds when you hear and you put into practice the things that you've learned in the Word of God. Well, back in the year 2000 to 2001, I'm just curious, uh, who was not yet born in this room uh, on 2000 or 2001? Would you raise your hand up high? You were not born. Okay, some of you are lying, and uh, some of you, okay. So up high, I want to see how many people weren't born yet. Okay, a pretty good bunch of people weren't born yet, and 2000, 2001. Now, for us older people, that just sounds like that was yesterday. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes I'll, I'll see something on the news, and I'll say, it'll say, back in 1987, I'll say, that wasn't that long ago. Then you go, 
oh my gosh, that was a long time ago. So uh, anyway, so if you weren't born yet, you'll, you'll still understand the story. I was just curious about that. But in the year 2000, 2001, there was a book written, and it was titled The Prayer of Jabez. Now that book was so faith-filled and prayer faith-filled and had so many promises connected to it that you would think it would have been written by a, a word of faith person, somebody who just likes the word of faith teachings. It wasn't. It was written by a good Baptist brother and professor, Dr. Bruce Wilkinson. Dr. Bruce Wilkinson wrote this book. In fact, I have, a, have one of them here. It's a perfect guy book. Guys are noted to not like reading. I do like to read, but this is, is that not the perfect guy book right here? This is the prayer of Jabez right here. And Dr. Bruce Wilkinson wrote it. I got some up here if somebody wants one afterwards. There's even one for kids, you know, so I'll be happy to share those with you. Um, but Dr. Bruce Wilkinson wrote that book, and then he caught some heat because some of his, you know, cohorts were saying, man, that's just a prosperity message, just a prosperity message. So he went to work to try to tell people, it's not a prosperity message, it's not a prosperity message. Well, I have read the book multiple times, and I can tell you, without a doubt, this is a prosperity message. Now, Bruce doesn't like to hear that. And sometimes when people hear prosperity message, they think something I don't think of. So if you hear prosperity message and you think God's your genie in a lamp and he's going to do your bidding and he's nervous wondering if you're getting everything you want, that's not a biblical prosperity message. The biblical prosperity message is pretty simple. God loves you, wants to bless you. He wants you to have more than enough so that you can be generous and give. You know, that's, the, that's what the scripture says. That God wants to make us rich in every way, every way, so that we may be generous on every occasion. Did you know it didn't say so we may build our own kingdoms so we can be generous on every occasion? That's the biblical prosperity message. So it's, it's a really cool story because if we went to 1 Chronicles chapter 4 and began to read the, the passage, it's just like it's, it's um, you know, an ancestry list is what it is. It says here's a family, and there's no fanfare, just say, and the people that belong to that family are this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. And then there's this family. And the people who belong to it are this person, this person. No fanfare, no extra information, just a name. Now, I suppose it's pretty cool to have your name listed in the Bible, number one bestseller on planet Earth, but there's no details about it. From verse 1 through verse 8, it's just person, 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 person. Then all of a sudden, we hit verse 9, and we find this, this guy's mentioned whose name is Jabez. Now, Jabez's name means bringer of pain or sorrow. Now, who wants to be named that? You know, you cause sorrow. You cause pain. Mama's mama named him that because this, here's how we would say it in modern terms. When I gave birth to him, he hurt me a lot. And so I named him Jabez, he who brings pain or brings sorrow. So it must be a pretty rough, a pretty rough birth. Well, Jabez isn't that fond of the name, apparently, and he wants to do something different because names mean a lot, especially in the Old Testament. They mean a lot. They kind of identify who you are. They may, they may, you know, influence your destiny. And so he wants to reverse this thing because names matter. In fact, many, 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 many moons ago, there was a uh, Native American lad who went to his father and said, I just am curious when I think about my brothers and sisters, how did you name us? And he said, well, it's real simple. He said, when your mama gave birth, I would step out of the teepee, and the first thing I saw, I would name the child. 
So your oldest brother is named Soaring Eagle. That's what I saw. When your next brother was born, I stepped out of the tent and I saw a running bear. So he's named Runny Bear, Running Bear. So he said, but I'm curious, why do you ask, stinky skunk? And uh, uh, I think Jabez felt like, that's the name I got, stinky skunk. I need to do something about this. So he prays to God. And we get these two verses, these two verses in the Bible. And he's actually going to ask God for something. So let's look at these two verses and see what he asks of God. By the way, I want you to know he's only asking of God things God has promised numerous times in the Old Testament, in the writings that Jabez would be familiar with. So, it says this, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. Does it tell us why? His mother had named him Jabez. I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Now I want you to know, God promised that to them all the time in the Old Testament. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to increase you. I'm going to enlarge your territory. There's all kinds of promises of blessing. And he says, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your, what's the next word? Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And apparently God didn't get mad about that. It says, and God granted his request. He is honestly merely asking for what God has promised multiple times to his children in the Old Testament. That his hand will be upon him. He knows this. If he causes pain, he will get pain. He understands the, the, the message of sowing and reaping. As long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest, sowing and reaping, heat and cold, summer and winter. And he knows that. And so he says, I don't want to be harmed. I don't want to do harm. I don't want to cause pain. I don't want to get pain. And so he calls out to God, and God answers his prayer. So then if you go on to verse 10, it just starts, name, 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 that's it. So Jabez gets a whole whopping two uh, verses, which may not sound much in the Bible, but it's a whole lot more than what everybody else got, and it has a powerful lesson to it. So today we're going to talk about the good hand of the Lord. The good hand of the Lord. I, I want to convince you that God hand is open towards his children. And I want to reverse, if it's in your head, that God's head, hand is against you, but rather that God's hand is with you. I started thinking about this a couple weeks ago because I was talking to Jim Burden. Jim said he's reading through Ezra, and he just liked this phrase where Ezra says, the good hand of the Lord was upon me. The good hand of the Lord was upon us. And I thought that is a really cool line, the good hand of the Lord. So there's all kinds of references to it. We're just going to look at two or three things and grow in those things. You can do a study and find out a whole lot more. But I thought one of the best places to look at about the good hand of the Lord is in the New Testament, the Christian scriptures. In 1 Peter 5, 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Apparently, God has a plan to lift you up, to exalt you, to, to elevate you in life at the right time. And the foundation for that exaltation, that growth, is humility. Now, this isn't a Bible dictionary definition of humility, but I think it's a good working one. Humility is, at its foundation, saying this. 
you are God, I am not. That's the foundation for humility. When we acknowledge God's rightful place and we acknowledge our rightful place, that's the basis of humility. And everything begins to flow. Every blessing of God, every promise of God begins to flow when we are humble, when we have humbled ourselves before the Lord. For instance, God, all throughout his word, is going to tell you things that you should do or not do. And it could be like, man, this is a, this is a lot of do's and don'ts. But you start reading these things, and they're not laws. What you start reading is these principles of God that are designed to bless you. That's what you'll read. And so when I read that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, if I'm humble, I say, yes, sir, I need a Savior. If I'm full of pride, I say, how dare you call me a sinner? I am not a sinner. See what happens? I don't get, then I don't get the benefits of being born again, being made the righteousness of God in Christ, having all my sins forgiven having them washed away and gone and being a new creation in God because my pride says, how dare you say that about me? And so when I look at the word, I have to see what is God instructing me to do, not, is, not what the world's instructing me to do, not what I feel like I would like to do, not what the culture says I should do. What, what, what does God's word say I should do? And by the way, the world, the culture, the devil has always been opposed to the teachings of God. So Every generation looks at their generation and says, we've never had a generation like this. Well, that's not true. Every generation, there's always a culture and a spirit behind it that wants to tell us not to do what God's word says. And that won't be our highest good, but it will be our highest good. And so pride says, how dare you? And humility says, yes, sir. On the day of Pentecost, Peter kicked open the door full of the Holy Spirit and spoke a message, spoke a message to Devout religious people. Did you catch that? Devout religious people. And their hearts were pricked. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And they said, repent, which means change the way you're thinking, head in a different direction. Repent and turn to God, every one of you, so that times of refreshing will come from the Lord. For there is no other name under heaven other than the name of Jesus, whereby we must be saved. Wow. They had humility because 3,000 of them gave their lives to Jesus that day. 3,000 of them because they could have said, how dare you say that I need to repent? We're devout religious people. We're devout religious Jews. You can't tell us to repent. But Peter gave them a message from heaven, and they said yes to it. So we want God's mighty hand working for us. We don't want his hand working against us. So let's look at Ezra chapter 8, 21 through 22. And there... By the Hava Canal, I gave orders for all of us to, this is like everybody's favorite spiritual discipline, I gave orders for all of us to fast. How many of you, when you get up on Sunday morning and think about going to church, say, I can't wait to have a wonderful service, and, and I also can't wait to leave church and go fast? Does anybody, I mean, probably half the people have their lunch plans already made on the way to church, but here they're saying, I gave orders for all of us to fast and what? Humble ourselves before our God. We prayed that he would give us safe journey and protect us, our children and our goods, as we traveled. For I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers 
and for horsemen to accompany us and protect us from our enemies along the way. The reason he's ashamed, we're going to find out here in just a second, is he just bragged about God, how big God is, how protecting God is. And he goes on to say that. Here's why I was ashamed. After all, we had told the king, our God's hand of protection is on all who worship him. But his fierce anger rages against those who abandon him. And so then after they bragged on God and they looked at the journey they were going to take, and went, uh-oh, we're going through some scary territory. <laughs> oh, man, I wish we had a military escort. Should I ask the king? How can I ask the king? I just bragged that God's hand would protect us. And guess what? God's hand protected them. He did protect them. They humbled themselves, they fasted, they prayed, and God did indeed grant them favor over their lives and over their possessions. So we see how the Lord's hand is good. It's gracious. It's mighty for all who believe. But it also is against those who abandon him. So we want to say, hell, I want to be a worshiper, not a person who abandons God, but who worship God and embraces God. And then the, we're going to look at this reminder in Deuteronomy. God's all about reminders. You look at the Old Testament, it says, pass this along to your kids and to the kids' kids and your kids' kids. You know, take stones and make a, a memorial here. So every time you see the memorial and people go, what's that about? I say, let me tell you what God did there. Let me tell you what God did here. Let me tell you. And so it's about reminding. So in Deuteronomy, they're reminding themselves. It says, then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now again, sometimes people get stirred up if something sounds like it might hint that God wants to bless you. Don't get upset about that. I'll tell you what, it's God's idea. It's God's idea. The idea of prosperity is God's. Now again, I mentioned this early. If when you hear prosperity, you hear God is your magic genie, that he's your little errand boy, that he's just nervous that maybe you're not getting everything you want the way you want it, and he's just hovering around making sure you're well taken care of. That's a false doctrine and a false teaching. Our God is the sovereign of all the universe. He's the one who speaks and galaxies are formed. He's the one that all of heaven and earth bow before him. He is not our little errand boy that's there sent to take care of us. And so what is he? He is our king and our loving father. Did you know this, that parents, good parents, love blessing their children? It's just a normal thing. Kids know that, so you can take advantage of that. We are predisposed to want to bless you. We are predisposed to want your life even better than our own. How many times do, do, have you heard parents say, I just want my kids to have it better off than I had? Every generation says, oh, that can't happen, everything's horrible, and the economy's this and that. I just want to say this, and, and I'm not saying everything's right in the economy, I'm not saying, you know, that things aren't out of control, but let me tell you what else I want you to know. We serve a God who is control of the kingdom that we are in, and he'll make a way. He'll make a way. Young people are saying, 
I don't know how we would ever buy a house in today's market. I get that, because guess what? I said the same thing when we were young five years ago. I said the same thing. How are we ever going to buy a house? Guess what? My parents said, how are we ever going to afford a house? And they went out on a limb, and we brought this beat-up little farm that was seven acres in Hope, Indiana, you know, high rent district, so they went for it anyway. Hope, Indiana, seven acres, and they pay, I always forget, I should have written it down, they paid either nine or $11,000 for it, and they didn't know how they were going to make it. But guess what? They did. And we did. And you will. You say, well, I don't believe I will. Then you probably won't, okay? But I believe I will, and if you believe you will, God will make a way. So, and that sometimes makes people mad. You ought to be upset about, I, I don't want to be upset about stuff. I want to just love the Lord and trust that he'll make a way because he does make a way. And he leads people into land that flows with milk and honey. He, he has a capacity to take God's people, his children, and put them in a place that's good. And he told them, he said, let me tell you what I'm about to do for you. You've been in slavery. You haven't been trained in war, but you're going to be mighty warriors. I'm going to drive out enemies before you. I'm going to give you a land where you'll mine out iron and, and bronze out of, and copper out of the ground. I'm going to give you a land where you'll enjoy cities that you were not the architect of, and you will enjoy buildings and homes you didn't build and vineyards and crops you didn't plant. Wow. We serve a God who is not limited by our limitations. And we just need to say, God, I don't care if we pray this, prayer. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you always did it. I don't know how they got through the Red Sea, but you were able to do it. I don't know how they escaped the most powerful military and financial force on planet Earth out of Egypt, but you did it. He has a way to make a way. And I want you to know this. It ain't even hard for him. I'm just speculating. He probably looked at the Red Sea and thought, I got 9,000 different ways I could do this. If I thought another second, I could have 20,000 ways. But here's how I'm going to do it. He's not limited. So our father loves blessing his children. And God, like all good parents, wants to have blessed children, but he does not want spoiled brats. And so we don't need to be spoiled brats. We need to be blessed children. Well, I don't know about all this prosperity. Why not? Because I'm going to tell you again what prosperity is. Prosperity is having more than enough so you can give to others. I don't know what's so ugly about that. I want you to have more than enough joy. So when little sad sack comes along, you can just pour out some joy on them. I want you to have more than enough hope. So when the hopeless come, they find hope in you. I want you to have more than enough peace so that people who don't have peace will find peace around you. You can have enough so you can share it. In fact, one of my favorite things is, one of my many hundreds of favorite Bible verses, is the Bible says if you go into a home and they receive you, leave your peace there. Well, I don't want to leave my peace there. I want my peace. No, you got more coming. you got more than enough. You can deposit peace in that home and still leave totally full of peace. God wants you to have more than enough, so when somebody needs help, you can help them. 
And if you're the one that's always getting help, I get that, that's seasons in our lives, but I want you to believe, God, that you're going to get past that, that there'll be a time where you're no longer the recipient, you'll be the giver. And so you can, that's, that's prosperity. God wants to make you rich in every way so that you may be generous on every occasion, not build your little kingdom here on planet Earth, which is going to pass away in a fervent heat anyway one day. So, the places God always takes his people are good places. If you notice, when the whole book opens up, there's the Garden of Eden. They're not in barely get by land. They're in what's often called a paradise. And they have more than enough. Sin comes in, breaks things, things fall apart. God still redeems people. And actually, we forget about this one, but when, when Joseph brought his family to Egypt, they settled in the land of Goshen. You could say this out. Goshen was the most prosperous, blessed land in Egypt. And then when things fall apart from there, God moves them into Canaan, the promised land, which I know we write hymns and songs and send the gospel songs and we equate heaven and the promised land as the same thing. They are not. They are two different things. Promised land was a physical land on planet Earth, Canaan. That I already mentioned. They would have all kinds of stuff that they didn't even work for. It'd just be there for them. And when we draw our last breath on planet Earth, we get to go to heaven as believers. And last I checked, it's a pretty nice place. It has streets of gold. It has crops that are blooming and feeding people all the time. It has peace and joy, unimaginable. There's no sickness, no pain, no sorrow, no grief, no mourning. You don't even need the sunshine. Because I'm not saying it won't, there won't be sun. I'm just saying there's no need of it because Jesus will light up everything. Wow. Hmm, good places. So here is Jesus on planet Earth. And he's out doing what he does. The Bible says Jesus went about doing good, healing all who were sick and oppressed of the devil. So he's dealing with the devil in a particular time. And he's casting out demons. He's taking authority over spiritual darkness. And the people who were jealous of him wanted to discredit him. So they said, hey, don't get excited about this guy. He just casts out Satan by Satan. He is in operation with the prince of demons. He's in operation with Beelzebub, another name for the devil. And Jesus tells them why that's a ridiculous theory. And then he says these words to them. Luke eleven nineteen and 20. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub... By whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I love that verse because I love the imagery I get. Now, I try to warn you when I'm giving my, my imagination to a verse that you might go, I've, I've read every commentator and no one said that. Okay, probably not, because this is my own imagination to the verse, so you can do with it what you want. And I think you'll say, I agree with your final end thought, but I'm taking it super literal here because of the imagery it gives me. Are you with me? Okay, you are free to reject this if you want. Jesus is driving out demons by the finger of God. We just read that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. So in my mind's eye, my imagination, I see Jesus saying this. He did not say this. Are you with me? I just see this in my mind's eye. That he goes on the scene and he sees he's dealing with Satan. He's dealing with the demonic. He's dealing with the devil. And he says, Father, 
I don't even need your whole hand or your outstretched arm. Just give me your finger. I can handle Satan with your finger. I have that kind of authority in the Lord. Just the finger of God. And I see that. I say, the devil had to hate this verse. Like, can you at least talk about his mighty hand and outstretched arm, not just his finger? He's going to deal with the devil with the finger of God. And he does it successfully. He deals with the devil. There's an enemy of our soul who resists our spiritual progress. In fact, I want to say this. I mean this wholeheartedly. I believe he resists any kind of progress in your life because Satan hates human beings. You say, well, he don't hate Satan worshipers. Yes, he hates Satan worshipers. He hates people. Now, I'm not so sure he doesn't have a little deeper hatred for those of us who say, hey, Jesus, you're my sovereign Lord, and I renounce all other authorities other than yours. But what I want to say is none of that should make us scared. We're not to be scared or fearful. We're also not to be arrogant about this. We're not to be ignorant either. Paul said, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices or schemes, or he will gain an advantage over you. So we don't need to be ignorant, but we need to know this. We are children of the Most High God. The scripture says in Ephesians 1 that Jesus, the Father raised up Jesus, seated him at his right hand, far above, far above all rule, power, authority, dominion, any name that could be named, now in this age or the age to come. We say, well, hip, hip, hooray for Jesus. So then we go to chapter 2, and then we go, oh, this even gets better. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Well, where is he seated? Far above all rule, power, authority, far above any name that could be named, now in this age or in the age to come. So we're seated there with him. Now, instead of that blowing your mind, which it's okay if it blows your mind, but instead of letting it blow your mind and then rejecting it, let it blow your mind and then go, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've been raised up with God. And so I want to put on that whole armor in Ephesians 6. I want to put it to work in my life because anything concerning your life, I think the enemy wants to reject it. I mean that, not even spiritual things. Let's say you say, hey, you know what? It's time for me to get healthy. I think the enemy's there to resist that. I really believe that. Paul said, when I want to do good, he didn't just say spiritually good. He said, when I want to do good, evil is present with me. The devil hates you. You say, well, I, I want to get healthy, or I need to work on my uh, emotional health or mental health, or I, I need to work on some relationships in my life, or, or I need... I, I need to go back to school and get some schooling. I, I, I need Whatever it is, I think the devil says, well, we'll just see about that. And he wants to resist it. So we put on that whole armor. We aren't full of fear. We aren't full of worry. See, that's another thing. He loves for you to get scared about him. Hollywood will portray that. You watch Hollywood, Satan's always, and these demon-possessed people are always like so incredibly powerful. And the priests generally is, you know, a little wimp that can't do anything. And that's not the reality in the kingdom of God. So we just don't need to neglect serving a notice to the enemy. And it's not a form of arrogance. It's say, hey, I'm a child of God. I am empowered and authorized. 
as Christ's representative to operate in the authority and power that Jesus operated in. I am approved by God to grow strong in him and in the power of his might. And then the devil says, well, I don't like that. Say, so take that up with God. Even Michael, the archangel, looked at Satan at one point and said, the Lord rebuke thee. So if the devil gives you any guff, just say, the Lord rebuke thee. Go take it up with Jesus. I bet he won't go take it up with Jesus. The good hand of the Lord is on us. God's good hand, his gracious hand, his hand of blessing, his hand of protection, his hand of provision. Uh, that's another thing. I really want to come against this. There's some of you in this room today who you always have this foreboding that things aren't going to work for you, that things aren't going to be right for you, that it works for other people but just doesn't work for you. You're always waiting for that second shoe to drop. I have had that. I've shared it with you before. And I said, I'm not going to go there. I've, I've had feelings like I think, wow, you know, everything's too good. That's a nice problem to have, isn't it? And you think, well, things can't stay good. And then one day I thought, says who? I don't see anything in the Bible where God says, oh, man, I really don't want things to be good for you. I mean, not for any prolonged period of time. And so we can have this foreboding, and this, the second shoe's getting ready to drop, and, and something bad has to happen. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Yeah, but I've had bad things happen. So have I. So has anyone in this room that's past three years old. You know, they've had bad stuff happen. But you know what? That doesn't define you. God has a good hand, the good hand of the Lord, the gracious hand of the Lord, the mighty hand of the Lord, the protective hand of the Lord, the, the outreached arm of the Lord. And I read a story this week that reminded me of another aspect of God's hand. A guy named Dr. Paul Brand, he pioneered the treatment for modern, the modern treatment for leprosy. And he travels a lot around the world and often is in cultures and climates and, and languages that he doesn't know what their customs are. He doesn't know what their culture is. He doesn't know their language. So he has a translator that comes along with him. And so one day he's talking to a person about uh, this treatment he's going to have. And what happens is he's meeting with this guy with leprosy and he's telling the treatment he's going to have. I'll just act it out for you. So he goes up to him and he says, look, he said, here's what we're going to do. And he begins to describe the treatment that he's going to take and what he's going to do and how he's going to minister to him. And the guy begins to cry. And then he begins to, like, really cry. And then he begins to sob where his body's, you know, shaking. And he goes, oh, my goodness, I've violated some social norm here that I'm not aware of. So he tells the translator, what did I do? What did I do that caused him such angst to sob like that? So the translator's talking to him. And finally he says, doctor, you didn't do anything. He said, he said, since, since you, when you touched me, that was the first time I'd been touched in many, many years by another human being. And the weight of that kindness and that love that somebody actually touched him just broke him. And I read that story and I thought, ah, the good hand of the Lord is also the loving hand of the Lord. Even in our bleak moments, even in our broken moments, even in our sinful moments, even in our dark moments, even in our diseased moments, God comes up with that gracious, loving hand, places it on us, and 
as the songs have often said, one touch from the master's hand, it can transform our lives. It can be healing for our souls. And I want to say today, won't you allow the good hand of the Lord to touch you today? I don't know what will happen as he touches you. Uh, there may be jubilant joy and laughter. There may be crying that convulses your body. There may be anything in between or nothing at all except the sweet presence of the Lord. I have tended in my relationship with God that I generally don't have extremes. Every, every now and then I will, but generally when everybody else is like, you know, feeling the warm glow of God on them, I'm like feeling nothing. And I say, it's okay, because I know the good hand of the Lord is on me. And so I'm not looking for a feeling. I'm looking for truth. The good hand of the Lord is upon me. 